your memory verse tonight, James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm sorry. My brain went dead. Uh, James 4, 7. Anybody else? Wouldn't that be nice if it was uh, just that Jesus resisted him once and he fled? But no, he's still allowed. He's out on bond and he's allowed uh, to continue to lie to us. And that's what he fights with. Anybody else want to try James 4-7? Pretty easy one. James 4-7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4-7. Good job. Anybody else? James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Good job. Anybody else? James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Good job. Anybody else? Well, what about some, uh-oh, therefore, so you got to look back and see what it's there for. Now, literally, you could, all, you could go all the way back to chapter 1. James has been, is James's nickname Camel Knees. He didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was um, alive and doing his ministry. But after his resurrection, James, his half-brother, came to know him. And they call him Camel Knees because he prayed so much that he had uh, calluses on his knees. And I love that. I like to tell that. I like to, that would be interesting. But on the hot sand, you put your knees on hot sand, I guess, that put calluses on there, huh? But James has been called also the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so that's another interesting tidbit because of the wisdom that is there. And really, when you leave chapter 3, you have just had a conversation uh, with the scriptures about earthly, central, demonic wisdom and godly wisdom. And then you're moving into chapter 4, which they divide so promptly for us. And we want to start in 4.1 is really where I want to look at because, because he, that's the whole point he's making. Um, and then he says, therefore. And anytime we say, therefore, you want to know what it's there for. So... Look what he says here in 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Question. Do they not come from your desires or pleasures? Notice that's in italics. That war in your members. Now listen to me because I've heard people teach this is countries fighting. Uh, and it says among you. I mean, it clearly says that. Now, I do believe that the concept behind it and the precepts behind it do lead to countries fighting. Uh, but what I want you to see is, is that James is talking to us. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying, where do wars and fights come from among you in the body of Christ? Where does that come from? Listen, people come to church and they say they know Christ. But they're really, at best, apostates, and they're not doing anything except loving themselves. 
All they're doing is pursuing what they want to do. They're pursuing what makes them feel good. They come to church to feel good about what they've done in their religious exercise, right? They're not coming to church to be equipped to go out and make disciples. They're not coming to church to be equipped to be sanctified and cleansed. They're not coming to learn how to serve and lay their life down and be more like Christ. They come for an altogether different reason because of the marketing and the shifting that the Antichrist has done in the church. And so we lose perspective of why we're coming to church. And James, uh, he says, where do polemus, polemus, where do these wars and fights come from? And literally, I mean, the word for wars is a battle, a fight, or a war. But it can be translated, and probably should be translated, disputes, strife, and quarrels. Because he's talking about among you, not, like I said, if you, want to, if you want to take it to the bigger point, why do countries, yes, you could probably talk about that because it comes from down and goes up. And, and it ends up in that, that you still have disputes, strife, and quarrels. And then fightings, which is what it is in the King James, it's a battle, right? It's combat. It, it's controversy. But it's also contentions and quarrels and striving. So we're having the same concept here. How does this happen in the body of Christ? How does this happen with people? And he says, of course, among you, which is a primary preposition denoting a fixed position. It's among, it's between. It's the direction that it's happening, and it's in us. Okay? It's in us, in the body of Christ. You see, this is what God is worried about, is, is not just our sanctification, not just our salvation, but our sanctification, not just about our, our, our individually, but how we fit together as a body. And he's saying, where do these wars, where do these battles, where do this striving and this contention, and all of these things come from among you? This is what we're looking at right here. And, and he says this, He's still in, chapter, in verse 1. Do they not come? He answers it for us. He wants us to think about it. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now, there's only one word there. And in the King James, it's actually just lust, plural. L-U-S-T-S. Instead of desires for pleasure, it's just lust. Notice the stuff that's in italics in your Bible. And it means to please sensual delights or your desire for pleasure. And the word is actually uh, uh, hedonai, hedone, hedone, there, there it is, hedone. And we get hedonism from it, the word hedonism. And there's even people that teach that Christian hedonism is okay. And you're like, what is that? Well, it's just the doctrine of pleasing self. It's the pursuit of pleasure. We see it coming out in our culture in entertainment. There, there, there's the thought that, that people, it's okay if you are happy. That's not God's pursuit. Hedonism is not what God's doing. He wants us to be holy. Holy is altogether different than happy. You can be holy without being happy about life's situation. You can have joy and peace and rest in Christ and be holy without liking your situation. Christ was hanging on the cross. He was holy. He was the most holy God hanging on the cross 
but he despised that shame and he endured it to get to the other side to leave an example for us, the body of Christ, those that would say they believe in him and how they should thus live. And hedonism is not the way to live. Christian hedonism is not a good thing. So that's where the, the word comes from. But look what he says. This is where wars and fights and all these things are because you're trying to take care of yourself. In fact, uh, Luke 8.14 is where this, is first, this word is first used at. If you flip back into Luke 8.14, I'm going to do a few of these tonight because it's amazing what begins to be taught by the scriptures when you look at these. Now, this is Luke's um, version of the parable of the sower of the seed uh, from, according to the Holy Spirit, through Luke, Dr. Luke, who was uh, very analytical. Look at 814. Now, the one that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but you have to obey it for faith to grow. Listen. Go out and choke out with the cares, the riches, and pleasures. That's it right there. The lust of, the, of life. And bring no fruit to maturity. Do you see this? This is the first place this is used. Because you receive the word. It should produce fruit. But the cares of this life, the riches of this life, and the lust or the pleasures of this life, the hedonism... Uh, and it brings forth no fruit to maturity. But look at 15. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. There's an endurance. There's You're running a race and you're learning to run with patience and endurance. But notice what it said. They keep it. They guard it. They protect it. That's a noble heart. They keep it. That's where this is, word is used the first time in the New Testament is in Luke. Um, and so, this is what James is allowing us to understand is where these desires come from. Uh, or excuse me, where this wars and fights come from. And he says it's because of those desires for pleasure that war in your members. It's a different word for war. Remember the word up in the in the first one was polemos, and this one is uh, stratuo. Stratuo. So they're different words. You see, sometimes that's why I like to look up the words because then it changes everything about the text. If you're just looking at war and war, and you're thinking both are the same words, they mean both the same thing. You just whatever your definition in your mind is of war or whatever definition that the world has changed and made you think war was, now becomes what you think for both of those words. And see, that's the, that's the deception of the, of the enemy who takes words and he says, did God really say? And then he puts another word in it. Did God truly say? And he changes what it means because what we want when we're looking at the word of God is also the thought and intent of God's heart with what he said. 
Not some made-up thought and intent. Not something that doesn't line up with his character, nature, his will, and his authority. But something that, that follows through the entire 66 books by 40 authors that's always been God's heart. Always been what God is doing. We want the whole thing to fit together seamlessly. And so this word here is this that war in our members, right? Now you could actually take members and say, well, we're at chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians talks about we're all members of the same body, right? And you could say that the members are now warring, which wouldn't be a bad exegesis of this. But what we want to look at is it's our members, it's warring in our members that keep us from looking out and taking care of somebody else. So the selfishness that's in our members keeps us from being at peace with other people. And that causes the wars. It's the desires that I have in my members that cause me to cause wars because I got my eyes on myself and not on others like Jesus did. Think about if Jesus had his eyes only on his throne. But he knew the mission that he came for. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was called for. He knew his identity. He knew when the timing was. He knew everything to the end of it, even to pray, Now, Father, restore me where I was before. See, he knew when it was time to go. He knew all of that because of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you that we can learn these things with patience and endurance. We can possess our souls and we can pray and we can trust the Holy Spirit to lead us in these things if we stop looking at self. If we stop only being concerned about what I can get out of this, but I come to serve. I come to give myself away. I come to help others learn. I come to help others grow. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit in me. Not nothing about me, but because God has called us to do that. And so you have the wars the, the wars in your member. Now listen to what this means, the war. Because this war is going on in, inside of all of us, and we are soldiers in the army of the living God. We're soldiers. We're, we're, we're not on a, on a playground for hedonism to be entertained and have fun and be happy. We're on a battlefield for holiness and other people's souls. And that's what we're fighting for. And if we would get this picture in our mind that it's all fought, it's all done, and the victory's there, and all we're doing is standing and military attention, telling other people, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. He's already fought the battle. He's already paid for your soul. All you need to do is stand up in orderly ranking and begin to obey the gospel, and he gives you the power to do it. So this is what it means. It means to serve in a military campaign. Listen, this is what the war means on this one. The other one was just disputes, strife, quarrels. It could be a battle. It could be a fight. But really, this one is talking about a military campaign where Jesus came down to win a war. He's won it for the souls of mankind. Satan's already been defeated. The adversary is destroyed. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Here's another way you can look at it. Because we're all sent just like the apostles were. And it means to execute the apostolate with its arduous duties and functions. Everything that goes with it. Everything that goes with it. Or here it is. Here's the way you, you deal with it with yourself. The rest of it is the body life. To contend with carnal inclinations. To contend with carnal inclinations. Or you can use the word fleshly. Well, my flesh wants to do this. My flesh wants to do that. My flesh would feel happier if I was doing that. Okay? Contend with them. 
That's the war in your members that you want to follow your lust. You want to do what you want to do, but you're really in a military campaign. And your members is a limb or a part of the body. Right? Members. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it's mentioned, I don't know how many times, 6, 8, 10 times, talking about all of us are members fit together, but we're members individually and I have things warring in my soul. I want to do things. I want to be things. I want to be known. Whatever thing is going on. And then you have to contend with that and say, no, I'm a dead man walking. I've been crucified with Christ. Listen, you have to put yourself in the grave and let Christ live through you. Look at Romans 6.13. Another place that this is used, Romans 6.13, dealing with, brain went dead for a minute. 6.13, look at this. And do not present present arms, soldiers. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present arms yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now notice, notice he's talking about members again. He's calling us instruments. See, and, and when you think about it, Satan was the praise leader in heaven. He knows how to use instruments and to play you like a flute. He can play you any way he wants. If you do not, that's where we're going to get to, verse 7, submit to God. He can play you, and he's got you thinking you're okay, and you're out there, and you're playing some song, and it like that sounds like a death march. What do you mean you're a Christian? That sounds like apostasy. You're still worried about self. You're still worried about the simple stuff that's going to burn down here, and you're not worried about souls. That sounds like Satan is playing you like a finely tuned instrument. Sorry. I get a little excited about this stuff. So, what's going on with your members? Are you a soldier in the army of the living God? Or are you somebody that said a prayer and you think you're okay and you can keep doing anything you want? And it causes, listen to me, that's what he's saying, causes all the envy and the strife and the jealousy and the fighting in the body of Christ is we don't understand our identity. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand our gifts, talents, and abilities. And that is, and if you go over to 1 Corinthians 12, you see it's the Holy Spirit, God himself, who hands all of that out. And we're supposed to be content with what he's doing and find out how he's fitting us together in the same body with Christ as the head, and then we can go forward and continue to tell people about the enemy's lies. Verse 2, 4, 2, listen to what he says. This is, this is accusations. This is the Holy Spirit. This is James saying exactly what's going on. And you would think, well, no, the church has grown up. We're not doing that anymore. No, this is the same thing that goes on in human nature, the sin nature, the self nature, for all of it, all uh, all of our uh, uh, earthly existence, you lust and do not have. I want some of that. I'm a little jealous because I don't have. You murder. 
King James, it's kill, and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You're not praying. See that? No, not, let's, let's, let's hide all the rest of it. Let's discover it. No, you're not praying. Then he's going to tell us you're not praying right. So, but he's saying you're not praying. But look at this. First, he, t- he deals with kill. You kill, and you listen. If you hate somebody because they, they have something, you hate somebody because of your physical flesh, your carnal flesh, you've already committed murder in your heart. So you become a killer. Uh, yeah, because listen, listen, anybody that has the mind of Christ is worried about life and souls and godliness. But if you're still living in selfishness, you have the mind of the Antichrist, and you are a killer. You are a murderer. You're only worried about yourself. And the first soul you're killing when you're selfish is yourself because you cut off your ears so you can't hear from the Spirit of God. And so you're really killing yourself. And then you start wars, and then you start all the other things going on. So you kill you slay. Why? Because you covet or desire to have. It actually says in the King James, you kill and desire to have. And, and desire to have is translated in the New King James, covet, which means to have warmth for or against, or to be jealous or envious of somebody who else has it, and you don't have because you don't pray, you don't ask. You're not obtaining or obtaining it because you're not asking God for it. But it's always somebody else's fault. And then three, he says, you ask. I'm praying. You ask. Well, I'm praying. You ask. Listen. Are you praying for the right things? You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own hedonism, your own pleasures, your own lust, your own self. Because you're, you're not giving yourself away. You're not concerned about other people. Now listen to me. We pray, and you want to pray for yourself. I tell people this all the time. People will say, oh, you don't have to pray for you. Listen, if your heart's not right, if your life's not right, if you're still looking at self, and you're worried about your little kingdom and your little stuff, instead of making sure that other people are okay, and you're trying to give yourself away because the Spirit of God wants people to come to salvation and then to grow. He wants them to become learners and pupils, and he wants them to learn to obey and go and tell others. So you repeat it, and you repeat it. So if you don't pray for yourself first, then you're probably doing that amiss. But then when you pray and all you want is something so that you can get something, he says that's amiss. It's uh, 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 badly is what amiss means. It's diseased, it's ill, it's evil, physically or morally, when you do it amiss. Because it's for your own hedonism, your own sensual delight. See, that's what our sin nature will do. It convinces us that it's all about us. You know, I I like to think that people are all thinking about me. I think of myself all the time, and then I like to think you're thinking about me. I'm teasing. Of course, but that's what the sin nature will do. Well, he said that because of me. And when you're sitting in a Bible study, listen, listen. If you're sitting in a Bible study, you're sitting in a church meeting, and you think the pastor said it because of you, you've got a couple thoughts to think about now. Did the Holy Spirit just convict me that that is me? Or am I just being selfish and think the pastor's talking about me because I am selfish? 
Both of them mean you need to deal with your heart. If you think that the pastor only said it about you, the Holy Spirit's convicting you, or it proves that you're being selfish and it's only about you. Because you're only looking at things the way they apply to you, which you should first, but you're not looking at them the way they would apply to other people around you. How am I damaging other people? How am I hurting other people? How am I helping other people? How am I serving other people? If all I'm worried about is me. See, that's old-fashioned sin nature that's only taking care of self. So be careful because your sin nature will convince you that everything is about your pleasure. It's about you being entertained and happy and it's not about Jesus because it's all about Jesus and it's all about souls being saved. That's the only reason he came and laid down his life. So what does he do? This is not, a, this is not an easy text. Listen, because look what he says next. I mean, he's making accusations. If anybody's causing these words, if anybody's doing this and their eyes is on self and they're not concerned about other people, and they're not praying, or if they do pray, they only ask for stuff for themselves, and they're not trying to help others, which, listen, the Bible, everything about the Bible is God-centered and others-oriented. Or you're never going to be uh, holy. You're never going to be, if you want to call it happy, the Bible calls it blessed. Some versions call it happy. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. I mean, they'll call it that, but I think that holiness is the more important part. Right? Because one, when you're saved, you become holy because God is holy. That's your position. But then if you're saved, practically you should want to be holy. Your actions should want to be holy. You should be moving toward more holiness, not sinless, but sinning less because you're learning to obey. And it should make you mourn and cry and be grieved if you know that your stinking flesh is on the throne of your life, you got to <laughs> kick him in the face, put him in the grave, and throw some dirt on him. Throw a lot more dirt on him. So look what he says to him. He calls them adulterers. Verse 4. Look. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Listen, whoever, it's like a therefore, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What? Is your desire still to be friend in friendship with the world? Because most of the church is. Most of the church will agree with their lies and say, oh, we just need to love. Well, the Bible says, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So when they try to convince you just to love and accept them where they're at, the love of the Father is not in you if you agree with their love. That's not the love of God that came down and died and demonstrated holiness for us. It's not the same love. But that's the love that's being preached in most churches is that we have to accept people and, and, and just agree with them because Jesus did. Jesus did not. Jesus preached a very specific gospel. 
and he obeyed perfectly for us, gave us that position to anybody who wants to believe. And if we believe, now we're set free from the penalty of sin so that we can run with endurance and grow and become holy just like him, practically. And that's in the text here, so we're going to get to it. Friendship. Wait a minute, we better deal with adulterers and adulteresses, right? Now, it's a male paramour. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. But a male lover or mistress is what that word means. This is not pornea. Usually when you have adultery or adulteresses, it's the word pornea, which means any sexual uh, 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 activity outside of the marriage bed that God has designed becomes pornea, or where we get the word porn from. But this is a male paramour, which means a lover or a mistress. Uh, and figuratively, or literally, it also means an apostate, a faithless person toward God, no faith towards God, ungodly apostate. That's what it's talking about. And then an adulteress is the same thing except in the female form. So he deals with both sexes. He doesn't deal with any babies. He doesn't deal with the 64 others that we try to make up. He just deals with two because God came to deal with sin in the world. And there's only two sexes. I'm not being mean. I'm not trying to, 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 to say anything to anybody that thinks there's something else. But if you think you're something else, you're in sin. You're in self. You're lost. You're just trying to be happy in who you are. And you need to be holy and believe in Jesus. That's the only answer for anything that's going on on the planet because we're all sinners. It's just according to what sin. We're all born with a sin nature. And the sin nature wants to convince you that it's all about you and whatever you believe is true, but that's just simply not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell to get you to keep practicing your sin and think you're okay when you're not okay. So adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship is the word philia? We get the, the word Philadelphia from it, city of brotherly love. Philia, with the world, it means a, a fondness or a friendship. It's the only place this word is used in the Bible. Philio, I think, is the word that's used in other places for, for brotherly love. In the cosmos, God's creation. And, and it's really talking about having this friendship, this fondness, and this fellowship with the world and the world systems. That's what it's talking about. And that is, I mean, it, it is in enmity against God. And this word is translated hatred in Galatians 5.20 towards God. In Galatians 5.20, you're having the fruit of the flesh, which is evident. And then 5.22 and 23 tells you the fruit of the spirit. And it, hatred is one of them. And enmity is the word that's used there, the same word for enmity. And it means hostility. A reason for opposition or hatred. See, people don't understand that when they decide they, they, that they want to be friends with the world, when they decide they want to stay in their sin, when they decide that they want to stay alive and keep chasing self and happiness and all of the stuff that they want, that that's a hatred toward God's plan. Even in the Christian church, it's a hatred toward what God said is true. And, and people go, no, 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 no. I just don't believe that the Bible says that, Greg. It's a hatred toward God's plan of salvation. And if you hate God's plan, there's no other plan. This is God's plan of salvation. 
to bring us back into right living with him. And that's through betrothal to his son Jesus. It's his plan. It's the way he wants it to be done. And if you think that being friendly to the world instead of being a messenger to the world is a good thing, it's not. It's hatred towards what God is doing. And you're interfering with people's souls when you think, I can just go do everything they're doing and I'll be fine. It's a bad witness. In fact, you become a perjurer because you're lying to yourself and to them about who God is. And it means that you are uh, philios, a, an associate or a neighbor to be friendly to one and wish him well. And listen, we're not wanting to wish people well in their sin. We want to share, shine light on them and have them come out of their sin. Have them come to Jesus. Have them to know the only hope of the universe. I'm trying to get to where I was at. This. So um, it says makes himself an enemy. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. I knew I was doing something wrong. I keep doing that. So his enmity is hostility. And then the second friend, not friendship, but friend. That's why it was like, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, what's he do? He makes himself. Actually, the word can be translated, is an enemy. Wait a minute, that's what we were saved from. We were enemies of God and we believed in Jesus. And then he, he, he had made peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. Well, if you're an apostate Christian and, and you're a Christian that just thinks if you say one prayer and you don't have to be sanctified and washed and cleansed, then you're still an enemy with God. Because you're not following the plan of salvation. Listen, none of this is done to earn salvation. It's freely given. But if it, you freely received it, now when you open it, you begin to follow it. You begin to say, wait a minute. I can't be friendship with the world. Why? Because I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I was already in the world. I was already living like the world. I was already doing what they're doing. But when I come to my senses and come to God, now I change my mind. I quit living the way the Antichrist did. Why is that? Because Eve changed her mind, didn't she? And then Adam took that sin because he wasn't protecting her. And now we're all born with that mind, upside down living. And then when we come to Jesus, it's right side up because we change our mind. Because he came down and gave an example of what obedience looks like, what holiness looks like. So when you choose to be a friend with the world, to be friendly and wish them well, you make yourself an enemy of God. And, and, and the word make means to place down permanently. An enemy is an adversary or hateful to God. Verse 5, do you not know, or do you, oh, excuse me, or do you think, Guess what? A lot of Christians need to think. We need to think. God has given us minds. He's given us His Spirit. Oh, I didn't. It didn't have a question mark after that, does it? But think about that just for a minute. Just ponder the Word of God. Just sit down and reason with God and say, "What's going on, God? Why is why is there so much wars and and, and anxiety and frustration in my life every day where I don't have peace and joy?" Why is there so much controversy? Why is there so much jealousy and envy? Why is there so much strife still in my life if this peace exists? Because you're still focused on self. 
because you're still focused on your own lust and your own pleasures. And you've got to start beating them down and beat your body into subjection and say, I can't keep chasing the same stuff that the world is chasing because if I do, I'm always going to have bad relationships with everybody else because I'm not surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification and truth. truth. Look, or do you think that the scripture says in vain? Look, pointing to the scripture, I can't tell you where, but in theory and in thought, this is all there, that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. I know that the Old Testament says that God is jealous with us with a godly jealousy. Think about it. If, you're, if I'm betrothed to somebody and I see them, here it is, God in the spiritual realm, we're betrothed to him. He's winning us back. He died on a cross. He gave his blood. And you said, I will. And then there you are going over being friendly with all the other mistresses and everything else. Wouldn't that make your husband jealous? Think about you've asked somebody to marry you. Will you marry me? I will. I will. I love you. I love you. I love you. And every time you look at them, they're talking to another of the opposite sex and given eyes toward them. This is what we're looking at here. That's why the Spirit is jealous, because the Spirit, who is the Spirit? The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord laid His life down for us. He came and died. He took the nails. He went through the grave. He got back up. He sent His Spirit back to us, and that Spirit now is in our heart and sees the things we're in love with, sees the things that we're sleeping with, sees the mistresses and the, and, and the people, and He goes, I'm jealous. Because I died to save you. I died to purify you. I died to cleanse you. I gave you a position in my father's house. And you're living as if you don't want it. Because you're still friends with the devil's house. Which is what I came and died to save you from. So in vain. Do you think the scriptures say in an empty way. That the spirit lusteth. This is the word. It says the word lust again yearns to dote upon, intensely craves possession. Think about that for a minute. Because he gives you a down payment. And he's coming back to take possession of the purchase, prize, the bride. And he's jealous with us with, it, with an insane jealousy because he died for us. And he intensely craves to take possession of us. And to, and to have the wedding supper of the Lamb and to get us across the finish line and we're chasing other stuff that we're attracted to and we're killing our own soul. So it says jealousy, which in King James says envy instead of jealousy. And it means ill, Ill will or detraction. Uh, wants to, he just wants to transform us. And we're like, oh, no, I'm too busy over here with my heart to let you have my heart. I'm too busy over here chasing these, this friendship in the world and all this entertainment, all this hedonism and all these things instead of letting you change who I am. Listen, I don't believe, and now there's no perfect people, but I don't believe that a person can come and meet the God of the universe and not change their life. When that's all of the gospel, to change your mind. Oh, I'm over here thinking like the Antichrist, and now I, I come to Jesus, and he gives me his mind, and I don't change my mind? 
He gives me his word. He gives me his truth. He tells me you were lost and you were going to die. And I say, oh my goodness, save me, Lord. It's like Peter jumping out of the boat. Every time he puts him back in the boat, he's jumping out. I ain't changing my mind. I'm going to go over here. Help me, Lord. And I'm sinking still. Help me, Lord. I'm sinking still. Help me, Lord. He's like, I keep putting you in the boat. Help me, Lord. You got to change your mind in the direction you're going. This is serious stuff. I left out a few of my things I wanted to go, but we'll do it for sake of time. I'll just keep moving. So verse 5, notice what it says. The spirit that dwelleth in you means to house permanently or to reside or to inhabit your heart. Here's the amazing part. He's envious that we're still loving the world and chasing the world. Even, I mean, even though he, he came to save us and we said, yes, Lord, we accept that salvation. And then we're making ourselves hate God or an enemy of God because we're over uh, fraternizing with the enemy, sleeping with the enemy. But look at this, what he says in verse 6. Now, now take note, that's the number of man. Take note, this is the number of man. This is 6. What does he say in the number of man? Grace. Right? This is what's going on. This is what's happening. This is what we're being saved from. The first five verses. And yet we're still living in it. But God, or excuse me, but he gives more grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives, he grants, he ministers and gives more grace. That's megas, exceedingly great graciousness. It's the divine influence on the heart uh, and the reflection in the life. What does that mean? There's, when you receive the grace of God, there's a divine influence on your life. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a gift of salvation. But there's a reflection of it in your life. In other words, there's evidence in the life that you've received that grace. There's a reflection because you've been looking in the perfect law of liberty into the mirror and you go, wow, this grace I don't understand, but it is changing my life that God would love me, the one that's chief of sinners. But then he says he also resisteth or he opposes. It means to range oneself against. The proud. And the proud really is those that are appearing above others. Appearing above others. You have a couple of things. I was talking to my nephew today about this. There's a couple of things that goes on in the body of Christ. One is, is that you have this one side where people get saved. And then every time they commit a little sin, now they feel so guilty, so shameful that they feel like I might as well just stick my head underneath the bed somewhere and never go out in public and never run this race and never live this life and never do anything. I'm never going to make it. And then on the other side, you have these people that are so haughty. They say, oh, I've got it figured out. I'm perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. I can go out and I can do whatever I want. And they're real proud about their sin. They're proud about their opinions. They're proud about what they're doing. And God wants us to be right there in the middle of that. 
where we understand our identity. We understand what Christ has done for us. And we stay low because we got nowhere to go unless he lifts us up. We got nowhere to go unless his word grows in us. We got nowhere to go because there's nothing good in us except for his seed that bears fruit when we let it grow through humility. And it comes up out of us and it looks like love. What do you mean love? It's got joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it wants to go out and serve others. It wants to lay its life down. It's not worried about its bills. It's not worried about its house. It's not concerned because my God will provide all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's really, and I didn't say slothful or lazy, did I? Because you're still doing the natural. You're still taking care of, of your things. But you're concerned about others. Notice Jesus didn't come down and keep going, Hey, Dad, you got stuff control up there? Dad, Dad, I'm down here trying to save people. Is, is it okay in heaven still? Dad, Dad, hey, hey, I need, to, I need to talk to you. Is things going good up there where I left my throne? See, he knew he could trust all of heaven, even his life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that on the other side the plan was, but he was afraid to do it. In that sense, not afraid, probably a bad word. But he was saying, my God, my God, in his flesh, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew what the plan was. But, it, but in his sense, he was like, this is freaking me out. Never been separated. Think about that for a minute. And it's the same thing with you and me. When you begin to separate yourself from your sin nature, the things that you're in control of, the things that you've always done, the things that feel comfortable, you got to get away from it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You trust that God is true. And you stop hanging on to you. And you trust what he's doing. He'll change your life. He'll change your mind. And you'll see the Shekinah glory of God. You'll see the evidence, in the, the, the reflection in your life. It won't stay the same if you begin to live by faith. Because God's giving more grace. Because he's resisting the proud. Do we look at that word yet? Opposing himself to. But he gives grace. More grace and more grace. Listen, even where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Listen. Quit staring at your sin and begin to stare at Jesus and follow him. Think about it. All the boys following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, they were all still falling short. Peter's got a sword in his hand. Maybe he's got it hid. I, uh, one text says, hey, here's a sword. And he says, that's enough. Let's go. You know. But think about it. He's still making up his own plans. He's still got his mind set on earthly kingdom instead of on spiritual. And it needs to be on spiritual, not on earthly. So he's still got ideas. But what's he doing that's real and right and the natural? He's following Jesus. He's not making up his own light like Judas and the Antichrist spirit coming from the other side. They got lanterns and torches. These boys are at least following. He said, let's go. It's enough. Let's go. Now, their minds weren't perfect. Their lives weren't perfect. But they were following the light even into the garden, even into being betrayed. I mean, think about Thomas's heart. Back in, is it chapter 11 of John? He said, when Lazarus is in the grave for four days, he says, let us go, we'll die with him. That's the heart that we're supposed to have. They call him Downton Thomas. Drives me nuts when they call him Downton Thomas. 
Doubting Thomas was making sure that it was true. He was investigating. He was asking questions. He's the heart that a a Christian should be. He wasn't doubting. He said, unless I see, unless I touch, I'm not going to believe it. More Christians need to be that way. He was ready to die for the Lord, but he wanted to make sure it was the Lord and not the Antichrist, that it wasn't some false religion. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to get excited here. I don't like it when they make up names like that about Thomas. I really don't. And it's been going on forever because people read commentaries and say the same thing about him that other commentaries said when it was a bad statement. Don't repeat bad statements. So he gives grace to the humble. What does that word mean? It means depressed. To the base, to those of a low degree. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures, it's the first one, it's uh, uh, Proverbs uh, 12, 25. Well, it was the first one I ever quoted to, to Tom Camp and Mike Abney when I got saved. I don't know why. Uh, it was the first one God showed me, and I memorized it. And they both stopped and looked at me like, this guy's quoting scripture does. He ain't number three months old in the Lord. But you have to begin to memorize scripture and listen to what God's saying. Listen to me. Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression, but a good word will make it glad. It's going to give it joy. It's going to give it a calm delightfulness. Listen, why am I telling you that? 1225 of Proverbs. Listen, anxiety, worry, heaviness in the middle of a man causes depression. It's a dual meaning in the Hebrew word. You will bow down to whatever is causing heaviness, right? And you're either going to ask God or you're going to stay depressed. If you ask God, he'll keep you humble. If you come to God for the truth, you get wisdom in it. And you don't have to worry anymore. But if you don't follow God's wisdom, then it's going to make you depressed and you're going to you're going to get back up and you're going to run off and you're going to act like God doesn't take care of you and you're going to stay depressed, you're going to stay anxious, you're going to stay those things because there's no cure for it other than bowing down prostrate before the Lord and trusting his good word to make you glad. The truth makes you glad. The truth changes your mind. The truth helps you understand who you are in Christ and how to walk it out, how to run it out, and how that everybody's the same as you. We're all the same. None righteous, no, not one. All sinners, and we all have an opportunity to be saved by the sacrifice that was made by uh, the Son of God for salvation. So when you look at the word humble, it's to stay down. Remember we just did Gethsemane, right? And Jesus comes forward, to ask people, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell down. If they would have stayed down at the power of God and understood what was going on, they could have grew fruit. But what did they do? They got back up and still arrested him and led him away in their own religion, with their own light, in their own life, instead of staying down and staying low where fruit grows from, is in humility and let God lift them up because you've seen the power of God. My opinion, so that was six. 
That's man. Even in all of these wars and all of this stuff, God gives grace if you will believe his truth. Or you can continue to be proud in your heart. See that? He resists and opposes the proud. They don't want to hear. They don't want to follow. They don't want to obey. Even in the church, they say, I believe. But they don't want to be changing their mind. They keep living the same way. Instead of relying upon God's word to change their mind. Metanoia, to change their mind. Look here, watch this. Therefore, this is our memory verse. Therefore. What's it there for? We just talked about all these wars, all these battles, all this flesh alive, all this, uh, all this sin nature still alive where we're doing for self, we're doing for self. We have all this sin nature in the church and there's no death. But Christ's church is built upon death, burial, and resurrection. That's where it comes from. Death to self. He died to bring us life. And so we have to die in order to have life and stay low at the ground, dead, humble. That's six. That's God-given man grace if they will receive it. Seven, listen, seven is receiving it, right? Seven is submitting to what God has said. Did God really say? Yes, he did say. Here it is. He did say, devil, you're a liar. You've been defeated. You're going to go burn in the abyss. Look at seven. This is how we're completed is when we agree with God. That's what he's saying. All of that was therefore submit to God, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not one time, but every time he lies to you, you submit to truth. Just like Jesus. And remember in Matthew 4. What did he quote? Scripture. He quoted truth. He took out the sword of the spirit. And the enemy had to leave. So he says here in 7. This is how. This is our response to 6. This is our response to God giving grace. His gracious gift. Is to receive it. And to repent. And to change your mind. Submit means to subordinate. Reflexively. It means to obey. It means to be under obedience. Oh, my goodness. Think about this for a minute. Our inheritance from the first Adam is death. Because we disobeyed God. We changed our mind in the garden is what this, where it comes from. But now when we submit to God, it's to obey. That's what it was all about. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed, and he gives us his righteousness. That's our position. Now if we want to stop causing the war, stop causing the strife, and receive the grace, we submit to the truth of God's word, and we receive that, but it's changing our whole character. It's changing our desires. As you, as you submit to the, the, the truth of God, now you're not going to be trying to do self. As you submit to the truth of God, the wars aren't going to be happening there, and the battles and the strife and the anxiety, because you're looking to serve somebody. If you submit to the truth of God's word, that you're dead, and that Jesus is living through you, and you become a new creation, now you're not going to be causing all of those wars and strife and contention. You're going to be looking to help somebody else know and grow and become a disciple of Christ. Oh my goodness, I'm going to pop. So, uh, therefore, submit to God. 
What are you submitting to? Listen, what are you submitting to? What's your God? What controls your life today? What are you submitting to? See, because we can, we can say, I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible, but then you're submitting to some other thing, and that becomes your God. It's what's controlling your life. It's why I get up in the morning. Is it the American dream? Is it your job? Or is your job a mission field? All of these things come into play now. What is the God of my life? See, because the God is who you're giving your heart to. The God is what's controlling you. But this is a military term submission, hupotasso. You guys have heard me talk about it before, hupotasso. Um, it's a military term that means to arrange troops in a military fashion, in an in a, in a orderly manner. That, that the fashion is that, that uh, under the commander and the leaders, just like God has one, just like you see it in the physical, and you see generals all the way down to privates, then the same thing goes on and talks about it in Ephesians 6. Our battle is not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers, a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's delegated authority. That's the leaders in the demon realm. So it's being, it's being used everywhere, and the church is the one that won't submit themselves to God, submit to his truth, and they keep listening to the lies of the devil, and we're supposed to subordinate ourselves under Subject ourselves to, submit to Christ, the Word of God. Now, if you say a non-military term, it's this. Um, non-military is the attitude of giving in and cooperating with truth. Cooperating with your sanctification. Because the only thing that's going to change your desires, change your mind, change your nature, we have a position, but in practically, we're going to be sanctified is cooperating with what the Holy Spirit's already doing. The Holy Spirit knows the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the Word of God. Christ is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has all the power, has all the resources, knows what's coming tomorrow. And if you will just cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing and submit to God, what happens? Now you have truth to resist the devil. Now you can resist the devil. Once you stand, and resist means to stand against, to oppose, to withstand. Listen to what this is. This is so amazing. Resist is two Greek words. You guys know the word histomai, right? It's to stand. In Ephesians 6 is the word histomai. Your stand. Right? This word resist is anti-stand. Anti-histomai. Just like anti-Christ, or you can either stand if you want to resist him, you have to be anti what his stand is. Anti the Christ mind, or the, the Antichrist mind. You change your mind. This is what repentance is about. Everything is about repentance. So it's two Greek words to resist the devil, diablo, diablos. Two Greek words to resist Diablos, who's the, the traducer, he's the false accuser, he's the slanderer. In order to get him to run away and to vanish and escape and leave you alone, you have to stand against him. Antihistamine. In other words, don't be with him. Don't be friendship with him. Don't be chasing hedonism. Don't be living in the world. You have to be submitting to God's word. God's truth, God's place for you, God's position for you, what God's doing in your life, what he's made you a member and an instrument of the body of Christ for. 
You have to submit to that and align yourself where he's got you at and be content with it. If you're not, you're still causing wars and strife and contentions and all kinds of things in the body of Christ. And you're still living with antichrist mind instead of the mind of Christ that's available for every believer. Where is it at? It's located. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God washing and cleansing us at the same time. What happens if you stand? What happens if you abide and continue and remain? What happens if you submit to God? He's going to flee from you. He cannot fight truth. He's already been defeated by truth. He can't deal with truth. He has to run away. This is all seven. Where does he run away from? From you. Oh, he might come back another day, just like he did with Jesus. We see a perfect pattern. He left for a more opportune time. He's coming back to you, so God's preparing you today to fight him for the more opportune time when he thinks, all right, now I got him. Well, why does he think that? Maybe because God says to him, have you considered my servant Greg? Just like he did with Job. Because he's already prepared you. If you're listening to his voice today, if you're obeying him today, if you're submitting today, if you're in the word, prayer, and fellowship today, you're being prepared for tomorrow's struggles. When God says, have you considered Greg? No, no, you can, you can, only, you can only tempt him this way. No, you can't bother him there yet. He's not ready for that yet. See, because God's in for complete control. And so then he brings the test because you was listening. You heard. But if you don't mix faith with what you've heard, then you're going to get crushed when he comes. Submitting to God. Submitting to truth. As long as Adam and Eve submitted to God, they walked daily in the garden with him perfectly. When they stopped submitting to God and they listened to the other voice, they hid themselves. They were afraid. And there's no reason to be afraid of God. Why would we be afraid of a God who died for us? Who gave his life for us? He poured his blood out on the altar for us to redeem us as his own special people, his own zealous people, ready for every good work. He's here saving. He's not here to kill. He doesn't want you to be afraid in a fearful way that you'd run from him. He wants you to be in awe of who he is, that we would such sinners and have no reason to be saved, and yet he would come and die for his creation and then choose that great love because he first loved us. Now, here's your choice. Six, God gives grace. If you'll bow down, humble yourself, stay low. Seven, how's that? How's it work? How's it going to make it happen? Eight, he's going to tell you it's a new beginning. Now you've been told to resist or excuse me, to submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee. Well, how does that happen? Here's your new beginning. You ready for the newness of life? Draw near to God. Draw nigh King James, and he will draw near to you. Listen. Listen, he's already come near. But draw near, and he will draw near to you. First usage is Matthew 3, 2. Look at Matthew 3, verse 2. Got to get my brain wrapped around this. It's crazy good. So the first usage of draw nigh um, is John the Baptist, right? Uh, saying, 
Where is it? 3-2? Repent. Metanoia, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has drawn nigh. Notice hand. Hand is a word for power. The kingdom of God is at hand. Hand is talking about what you're doing, what you're using your hands for, where your power comes from. Stay with that thought because in a minute he's going to tell you uh, to cleanse your hands. But we're going to finish this thought first. Quit living according to the hands of the Antichrist. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new power. You have a new spirit. You can change your mind. You don't have to listen to the lie. Now we have truth that we can submit to and the enemy has to flee from us. So here's how we resist. Draw nigh to God. Make yourself near to God. Approach God. Come near to Him. And He will draw near to you. Look at Matthew 8. I don't know if I'm ahead of myself or not. My brain went dead there for a second. Does your brain ever go dead on you? Oh, yeah, I'm ahead of myself. So he says, draw near, and that's the kingdom of God. God has come near. And then in our text, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Right? Notice this first usage for this. Cleansing means to make clean. This is your part, submitting to God. We've already got a position of cleanliness. But notice this. Draw near. What happens here in, in 8.2 of Matthew? Jesus comes down from the mountain. Great multitudes are following him. And what happens in 8.2? Somebody drew near. Who drew near? A leper. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can cleanse me. This leper drew near. Now, leprosy is something that separates you from everybody else. You're not allowed to be around. If you were within, if you was within, uh, uh, I don't know how many feet it was, but downwind of somebody, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, so that they would not, their, your air would not blow on them. Kind of like COVID. So your air would not blow on them. And so we have this mixing of, uh, uh, again, from Babylon. But I, I need to, to digress and go back to this. What happens if you draw near to God? What happens? Look, this leper came and drew near. If you are willing. Remember, he bowed down first. Worshipped. Prostrated himself. Humbled himself on the ground. He drew near. He knew that he could do this. You know that God can do this? And what does Jesus say in verse 3? He put his hand out and touched him. Nobody would touch a leper. But Jesus will. Look what he does. And he says, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Listen. Are you drawing near to God? He'll draw near to you. He's willing. It's his will that none would perish, but all would come to what? Repentance, metanoia, change your mind, stop listening to the lie, and learn what the truth is, and then submit to the truth. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. We already have the position, but he's wanting us to obey now, that the penalty's out of the way. Now we learn to obey. And he changes our desires. 
This is the new beginning. This is eight. Draw near. Trust him. The penalty's been paid. Now you can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can come and be cleansed. You can come and worship him and bow down and he will immediately cleanse you. You still got to believe that truth though. And walk in it. The newness of life. Pretty amazing to me. James is pretty powerful in what he says. Cleanse your hands. God's willing. Are you willing? It's hands. This is power. What you're touching. You put your hands to the plow. And you begin to plow his field. Not yours anymore. You changed your mind. Now you're in his field. You're looking for souls. You're harvesting. You're not in the Antichrist's field anymore because your mind has changed. In a Hebraism, this word for hands, it means, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it means an instrument. A means or an instrument. See, now the devil's not the one playing you like a flute, but God's making beautiful music with you. And you go out with your hands to help others with his power of the Holy Spirit because he's cleansing you, because you've drawn near. Then he says, oh, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. This is har harmatolos. Harmatolos. Wait a minute, he's talking to Christians that don't understand how to be sanctified, that don't understand how to be cleansed, that are still apostate. They're still causing wars and contentions and fights in the body of Christ instead of working together as a body. It's the word for sinful or sinner or somebody devoted to sin, still practicing sin instead of following God. You have to change your mind. You're not devoted to sin anymore. You're devoted to Christ now. You're devoted to his will. Not my will, but thy will be done. And that's what that's talking about. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Those that are still practicing sin and devoted to sin. And you're still focused on self. And you're still focused on hedonism. And you think it's okay to fight for your own instead of giving yourself away. And walking in the spirit of God. And we all have issues with this. Don't think anybody has arrived. We're all still trying to be sanctified. But you know, there's Christians who just believe all you have to do is say a prayer. And they're deceived into thinking that they get a tag on their ear and now they're good and they don't have to do anything else in life. But if somebody buys you with their blood, you're not your own anymore. You're not supposed to keep going and chasing and doing everything you want. Your members, your body, you're an instrument for somebody else in their choir, in their kingdom, to be used for their glory. Purify what? Your hearts. The middle of you, purify means to make clean. It actually means to sanctify ceremonially and morally. What does he say in John 17, 17 that we just seen? Sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. See, that's the only way when you submit and you draw near to God, now you can be purified. Your hands can be washed. They can be cleansed because you begin to change your mind and know that God's word is true and everything else is a lie. 
And you're no longer having the mind of Antichrist. You're having the mind of Christ, which he freely gives to you. First usage is in John 11.55. This is so interesting. I just want you to see this, and that's the only reason I'm bringing it up. We just covered it, and I passed right over it and didn't recognize it. But in 11.55, what's going on? It's pretty amazing. Notice what they're doing. I'll read it to you. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. What? What were they doing? They were obeying God's provision. They already looked forward to the Messiah coming, and, and, and now they're obeying because they know the Messiah's coming. They, they, they don't know that he's here, but he's right there. He's getting ready to die for them. But why are they doing that? Oh, they're just following the law. No, they're purifying themselves because they're obeying what God said to do. All adult males were supposed to appear before the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. They look forward by faith to be saved, and so now they're God's people. But now they're performing what they believe. They're obeying what they believe. It gets better here in a minute before we close. Watch what happens. So he says, purify, sanctify, cleanse yourself, your hearts. Obey God's provision. Right? You double-minded. What? This is the second time. That's why I said this goes all the way back to chapter 1 of James. He's calling them double-minded again. You know what double-minded means? Anybody look it up earlier? Double-spirited. In other words, you have the sin nature and the new nature, but you're listening to the Antichrist spirit and the Holy Spirit. You're trying to be double-spirited and listen to both. And, and when you like what God says, you're like, yeah, Lord, I love that. You're going to take care of me. But then you don't like it. You say, no, never mind. I'm just going to do what I think over here. I'm waiting for a better answer. So, the, so, so your flesh will listen to the Antichrist spirit and come in on this flesh every single time instead of listening to God's word. Oh, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. Yeah, but what about obeying? What about following? What about keeping? What about doing what the Bible says? So that you can be sanctified and cleansed, ready for every good work and being prepared by the master. Double-minded means two spirits. You get the mind of the world and Antichrist, my flesh wants to rule me. And I'm causing wars and all kinds of strife in the body of Christ because I won't die and have one mind. I can't have any joy. I can't have any harmony. I can't have any fun because I have two spirits. I love one and hate the other. And you'll always hate God. Unless you surrender completely and submit to God's word. But people draw a line in the middle. They want to hang out in the middle. They want to have the best of both worlds and it's not possible. Double-minded. And it causes misery in your life. It causes envy. It causes strife. It causes jealousy. Why doesn't God take care of me? Because you're still looking only at me. Only at self. Instead of having the mind of Christ that gives itself away. First usage. What is that? 
Oh, is in James one eight. You guys know it. You guys familiar with that? Just back up a couple pages. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let's just go to verse two. Uh, he says, "My brethren." So notice this is this who's talking to throughout the whole book, brethren. Count it all. Let's think forward what count means right there. Just like Jesus on the cross, he counted it all joy, right? He thought forward about people coming to salvation because he went to the cross. When you fall into various trials, you're going to. You're going to have trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We need endurance. You need to know how you're running. You know, need to know what your strength are. Everybody trains. What are you training in? Righteousness or are you training in sin? What's your mind doing today? What are you practicing? What are you doing? Are you practicing sin? Or are you practicing running this race that you've been set free to run? But let patience, let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the work. This is when we see him. If any of you lacks wisdom, God's wisdom, not earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without being double-spirited, without doubting. For he who doubts, oh, that's not without doubt. That's not without doubt. This is just doubting God instead of being faithful, faithless. It's the doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Here it is, number eight again, right? New beginning again. He is double-spirited man, unstable in all of his ways. Six is asking. Seven, don't doubt. Eight, if you do doubt, you're double-minded. You're looking for a better answer. God's answer is the only answer. Is that what Eve did? She doubted God? That's what, that's what Satan did. He tempted her to doubt. If you are the son of God, he said to Jesus, and he said, it is written. He didn't say, huh? Am I the son of God? He knew who he was. Do you know who you are? In Christ. Listen to me. Very important. That's the first, is that first usage? Acts 1, or excuse me, James 1, 8. Do you believe God or are you doubting him? Then he says, Lament. Verse 9. We're going to do 9 and 10 and we'll be done. 9, he says, lament and mourn. Lament means to be, be afflicted. To realize your own misery. Realize that you're double-minded. And confess it. Realize the things that are going on and mourn over it. Be grieved about it. Wail before God. Have a funeral for the old nature and bury him. And say, I don't want to listen to the Antichrist spirit anymore. I don't want to be caught up in the flesh. I don't want to be selfish and cause dissension in the body of Christ. Change your mind. Listen to me. Change your mind. Realize the truth. That's all he's wanting you to do. And then he says, what does he say? Lament and mourn and weep. Look, with, look at this. Let your, this is something you do. You let your laughter be turned to what? Mourning. What's he saying? Listen, laughter is a, as a mark. Listen, mark 
of gratification. It's a mark of gratification. What? Well, to your hedonism. You're laughing about things that you think are bringing you joy and they're really killing you. Your selfishness is killing you. And you think this laughter is my happiness. This is my, this is good. But the things that we laugh at, God is saying, change your mind and stop laughing about it. We're in a, a battlefield, not a playground. And we go chasing self and go chasing entertainment and chasing all this stuff and say, I have a right to be happy. And then we laugh about things that are really bad. And God says, change your mind. The devil is deceiving you. You're deceiving yourself. You think that that's something good to laugh about, and that's really leading you away. You think, this is making me happy, and you really should be afflicted by that because it's deceiving you into following self. It's deceiving you into continuing to go this way. So let your laughter, your entertainment, what you're finding joy and satisfaction in be turned around. Listen, to turn across. Change it to turn across, turned to mourning. You know, that's an interesting word. The first time that word is used is, is when uh, uh, Peter is given the first sermon of the church in Acts 2.20, and he's quoting Joel about the sun turning to darkness. The sun will turn to darkness, right? Light goes to dark. He's telling us for dark to come to light, to turn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. We're supposed to go this way and change our mind. And he's saying that it'll go this way in the day of judgment, that the light will turn to dark. See, they'll call good will be called evil. Evil will be called good. We need to be awake to this stuff. What we used to laugh about should be, bring heavy grief. The things that we call self-gratification and my opinions and what I want to do and self, self, self that causes all these wars and contentions should cause us to mourn over our sin. Let your joy, look what he's saying, let your joy be turned to gloom. What makes you cheerful and have calm delight and what you're trusting in for gladness, you don't want it to turn it the other way because it's upside down. It's upside down. The world's lying to you. Self and your sin nature and the Antichrist mind and the things that everybody's pursuing is not joyous. Joy comes from Jesus and others and yourself. It comes from being dead and walking in the newness of life. So it's perverted and twisted around like, I got to go do this, and I got to be happy, and I got to chase this, and I got to entertain myself, and we're all going to do this, and woohoo! And it tastes like gravel in the morning because it gives nothing for your life. It's upside down and it's sad. What we say is joy is usually somebody else's grief. So, 10, he says again. He repeats, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? To depress, it's a condition of the heart. Bring yourself low. Take the sin nature and bury it. Have a funeral for it. Bury it. Realize who you are. Realize where you're at and allow God to cleanse your hands. How? By submitting to his truth. 
by drawing near to what he's doing, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse me, Lord. I'm a leper. I'm a sinner. And he's willing to do it. But you're humbling yourself where? In the sight. Notice it's self that's being humbled. Notice it's self that's being humbled. We began the chapter with self causing the wars and the contention. Self causing all the problems because you desire and you lust and you chase after in your members. Now take self and bury it in the grave. And then what happens? God will see it in the, in the face of God, the sight of God, the presence of God. And he will lift you up. Now it's interesting. And we're going to look at it really quick. We're probably looking at it here pretty soon anyway. But look at Luke chapter 1. And look what happens. Look what happens with Luke. Or excuse me. With Zach and Elizabeth. Chapter 1. First usage. 1, 6. Look what it says of Zach and Elizabeth. Now listen. Listen. Because that's the number of man. Again, one six, and they. This is this is man. They were both righteous before God. Listen, walking. This is how they're living in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord. What blameless? Blameless. This is the first usage here in the presence of God. See that walking in the ordinances. Before God, right there. Righteousness before God. That's in the sight of God. Humble yourself in the sight of God. Well, they are before God. What are they doing? How are they doing it? How do you see it? How do you see the reflection of grace in their life? Because they are walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. And because they're looking to obey him, now they become blameless. Okay? How do we obey we believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And then listen, listen, listen. Notice, notice this. They're blameless. They're following God. Even though in the physical, it looks upside down. What are people saying about them? Look at verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Listen, that's a curse in the culture. Listen, in the physical sense, people looked at them and, and said, they're cursed. They don't have a child to give their stuff to, to raise up as a male offspring, to, to continue their lineage. Listen to me. In the physical, the world looks at them and says they're cursed. But what did God just testify? They were blameless. Why is that important? They were serving, verse 8, right? Don't look at the flesh. You look at the flesh yourself, you might be happy doing those things, but God says keep doing the natural. Keep obeying. Keep following. Keep living for me. Humble yourself in the sight. Even if in the physical you don't see the fruit, in the spiritual the fruit is there because you're humbling yourself in my sight. And I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to elevate you. Really? How did he? How did he? These barren people, old in age, what did they get to do? Here, let's go serve before God. Now you're going to get a chance to light the incense. Your lot has come up. And what happens then? Then I'm Gabriel. 
And God has answered your prayer. And you're going to have the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. And he's going to announce. Look what happens when they continued, even though in the flesh, people still said they were cursed. But when they humbled themselves before God and they continued to do the commandments and the ordinances and do the natural, God lifted them up. And they were able to have John the baptizer. John, the grace of God, was delivered by John the baptizer. And John actually means God's Jehovah's gracious gift. Listen, change your mind. Whatever you think you're missing and you're jealous about, whatever you think in the flesh is hindering you, whatever you think in the flesh, this is not working for me, whatever you think in the flesh, quit looking at the flesh Humble yourself in the sight of God and submit to his truth. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you and he will lift you up. I guarantee you there'll be fruit if you obey God. If you surrender and get low and stay there. Humble yourself in your heart. And all of this is for salvation or excuse me, all of this is because of salvation, not for salvation. Think about Zacharias and Elizabeth. First usage there in the presence of God. God remembers his oath. See, God remembers his promises to you and I. God remembers that if we submit to him and resist the devil, he'll flee. God remembers that if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. God remembers his promise of salvation to those who humble himself in their sight. He will lift them up. It'll always be there because God doesn't break his promises. God remembers. Why? Because he's brought us grace. Are you submitting to the grace of God that has appeared and brought salvation? Teaching all men to deny God, uh, ungodly lust? What's that say in Titus? Better go there or I'm going to mess it all up, ain't I? I don't know why I don't have this verse memorized. I've memorized it once. It's Titus 2.11. Um, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, there it is, isn't it? Lust, there it is. That's the stuff that causes all the fights. We should live soberly, new mind, that's our mind, righteously and godly in this present age, and what are we doing? We're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself that he might redeem, for, redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He's purifying us. And he has in the spiritual realm, he has in the position Positionally, we are purified. Positionally, we're sanctified. We're consecrated. But practically, we're walking out and learning to be what he's already called us. Remember he changed Peter's or uh, Simon's name to Peter? And Peter's learning to be what he called him, a rock, a small pebble. He was anything but that. In our text on John, didn't he just deny him three times? But Jesus called him what he's going to be, what his position is. He didn't call him Pope. He called him Peter. Next week's scripture. Revelation 3.22. 
Let him who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's plural because he's talking to the seven churches of Asia. But what is the Spirit saying to the church? Not what the talking mouths and the talking heads and all the battles and what the flesh is saying. We are spiritual. We don't regard anybody as flesh and blood. What does the Spirit of God say? Whatever he's saying will always line up with his character, his nature, his will, and his authority. We're going to see this. He says it seven times. And in order for our sixes to be completed, we have to listen to what the Spirit says. So write that down. Revelation 3.22. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that at least now we know where the wars and the fights and the contentions and the strife and the jealousy and the envy, all the things that are going on in our body, in our churches, we know where it comes from, Lord. In our world, if you carry it out to the fullest. But Lord, we don't want our own will. We want your will. We don't want our own desires. We want your desires. We don't want the earthly, central, demonic wisdom. We want your son, Jesus, and the wisdom that's from you, the wisdom of God. Lord, teach us to humble ourselves. Not just the first time when we believe that Jesus is Lord, but every time our will meets the cross, teach us to humble ourselves. Teach us to submit to you and trust your word and not listen to the lie so that the liar will have to flee. Lord, we want to draw nigh because you've drawn nigh. And we know that when we believe your word and draw near, you'll draw nearer to us. Help us to Cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Teach us to humble ourselves in your sight. Pour out your spirit, Lord, and send us out as witnesses for your glory for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The Lord bless you.